In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the magical and occult roots of political power. The thing that makes magic extremely powerful here and now is that it's something that individuals and small groups can do without a lot of funding. You don't need the huge media budgets. You don't need the huge technological structure. You can actually work by word of mouth, by building imagery, by letting it spread person to person through the grassroots, the crawl spaces. That makes magic exquisitely powerful. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. 
Welcome to your Friday. Magic and politics seem like unlikely bedfellows, but in The King in Orange, author John Michael Greer goes beyond superficial memes and extreme partisanship to reveal the unmentionable realities that spawned the unexpected presidential victory of an elderly real estate mogul turned reality TV star and which continue to drive the deepening divide that is now the defining characteristic of American society. John convincingly shows how two competing schools of magic were led to contend for the president in 2016 and details the magical war that took place behind the scenes of the campaign. John Michael Greer is a highly respected writer, blogger, and independent scholar who's written more than 70 books, including The Long Descent, Circles of Power, and the award-winning New Encyclopedia of the Occult. John is an initiate in a variety of Hermetic, Masonic, and Druidic lineages. He served for 12 years as Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. His latest book is The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. Hey John, welcome, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you for having me on. Let's begin with your definition of magic. Mad it's actually not my definition. It was uh, coined by Dion Fortune, who was one of the great 20th century magical theoreticians, also a crackerjack practitioner. Her definition is magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. All right. I know that's not that's not the way magic is usually defined, you know, sort of by the mass media. It's not what you see in Harry Potter, but, you know, one of those things. Right, right, because we imagine, uh, you know, magic as wands and, and, as you point out in the book, puffs of smoke and incantations and symbols. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do the tools, or what are then the tools of magic according to this definition of magic, the art and science of causing changes in consciousness? Um, the real tools of magic are will and imagination. Um, you have to have the imagination to come up with the goal that you have in mind, you have to have the will to focus on that and direct your actions, both physical and, uh, shall we say, slightly less than physical, in the direction of that of that imagined thing. You need to work toward the fulfillment of it. Um, and to a certain extent, that sounds like common sense, and in a very real sense, it is. But you have to actually apply it. Most people don't. So someone asks, you know, how can magic still have such an effect? on the modern mind in a post-industrial age. Aren't we too sophisticated <laughs> for that now? <laughs> Quite the contrary. It's because we're so ignorant about magic, because we have so little time for what's going on inside our own heads, so little self-knowledge, that we are almost uniquely vulnerable to magic. Um, the, the great example I have here is modern advertising. Um, look at an ad one of these days. You see, let's say, an ad for fizzy brown sugar water. We call that soda, right? right. Fizzy brown sugar water. Um, and the ad, now, the ad is not trying to claim that there's anything good about fizzy brown sugar water. There's, you know, a, three or four attractive, young, um, obviously well-to-do people who are all clutching cans of fizzy brown sugar water and smiling and beaming. They have obviously all just gotten laid. And it's a spell. It's meant to try to sucker you into thinking that if you buy fizzy brown sugar water, you're going to be like them. We all know it's not true, but because we are so unsophisticated about magic, so ignorant about the basic principles of magic and the way our own, our own minds work, it sucks us in. And people run out and waste money on fizzy brown sugar water. Right, right, which gets, gets to the, uh, the idea of creating desire for the product. You're not selling the, the product, you're selling yeah. the, the feelings associated with the product. Yeah, exactly. 
you're, sell, you're selling, in, in the case of the fizzy brown sugar water, you're selling a sense of inadequacy. You're trying to make people feel inadequate and then give them um, the image of fizzy brown sugar water as the talisman that will make them happy and handsome and young and rich, which is, again, complete crap, but it works. And it's because we are so unsophisticated about magic that it works. Go ahead. So advertising, public relations, those are the the magic Mm -hmm. of today. Now, you you began experimenting with magic at 16. You discovered you could cause changes Mm -hmm. in consciousness in accordance with the will. So Mm -hmm. give me examples, Mm -hmm. if you could. Oh, in terms of my own life? Yes. Well, you you have to remember at 16, we didn't have the, the diagnosis Asperger's syndrome in those days. So think socially awkward bookworm with a, with a massive amount of psychological baggage and a huge sense of inadequacy. Um, nearly everything that I've done that has gotten me out of that, that has gotten me to the point of being a successful writer, a successful blogger, happily married, all these other things, has been a function of magic, has been a function of imagining the reality that I want focusing my will on it and using various means, some practical, some, well, we can call them psychodramas if you want. We can call it symbolism, um, magic, (laughs) to focus my intention on that, to get past these various personal burdens. Um, It works. Okay. TSW. There's there's an acronym we we use in in magical circles. TSW. The polite version is this stuff works. (laughs) Okay. So you could affect changes in your consciousness. What about others? That's correct. Um, This is where we start getting into slightly spooky territory, because it's less certain the more people you want to affect and, and, you know, so on, the more more challenging it becomes. But yes, you can affect other people. Um, Love spells are a great example. Um, Everyone wants a love spell. Again, think of insecurities, right? If you change the way you present yourself to the world, you change the way that other people react to you. Um, we all know how if somebody shows you know, signs of, of, of feeling inadequate, we all treat them as though they're inadequate. Similarly, if somebody is confident, that confidence is, is infectious. Um, does it go further than that? Quite possibly, yes. We don't actually know the limits of magical possibility, just how far we can extend. We do know that we can shape our own consciousness, we can shape the consciousness of the people that are around us. A group of people working together can influence collective consciousness and cause political change so tell me about i believe his name is pronounced juan culiano the romanian and his juan culiano yes culiano was a um he, he was a historian he was deeply into researching the magic of the renaissance and unlike most people who study it he also practiced it um, he he was a very close student of the writings of Giordano Bruno, who was a renegade friar who was burnt at the stake by the Inquisition in 1600, um, wrote, wrote many books on various strange subjects, including magic. Um, but Culliano was, was, was one of the people who really gave me the clue that advertising is a modern, although debased, form of magic. It's a way of controlling people by controlling their imaginations. And he tried to do the same thing. This was a little after the Iron Curtain was down. Romania was going through various political convulsions. And he was found dead in a University of Chicago bathroom one spring day with a bullet through his brain. It's never been solved. So, so if, if you're going to be playing magic, um, first of all, remember that... Um, the other side may be using slightly more physical um, weapons. And second of all, be sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> so there's a quote, I believe it's from Eros and Magic. Modern, industri- mm-hmm. modern industrialized nations are magician states. Mm-hmm. Can you explain? Mm-hmm. 
We, yeah, sure. This is this is actually something a lot of people miss. People are they, they want jackbooted thugs. Their image of of tyranny is focused on like Nazism or or Stalin. Okay, you have jackbooted thugs. You have prison camps. That is also nineteen thirties. <laughs> um, the standard approach to social control nowadays is magic. It is by using control over the imagination um, to keep people from thinking unapproved thoughts. Um, you spend your time glued to a television, you know, four or six hours a day like most people. Um, for, I mean, other than the fact that your mind, is, your brain is dripping out your ears and puddling in your lap, what's happening? You're being fed images, and those images are not accidental. People are spending a lot of money to put those images into your head. Those are constraining your imagination. Those are giving you things to imagine so you don't imagine anything outside the status quo. Mm. That's how a magician state works. It builds an image of itself as inevitable. It builds an image of itself as the only option. There is no alternative. This is the way thing is. And especially in America, it's fixated on the notion that this is as good as it gets. This is, this is, look how wonderful the consumer's paradise is, even though it absolutely sucks for a very large number of people. The image is powerful. People get this, you know, this endless sequence of images trying to convince them that everything is okay, and if they're having problems, those are just personal problems. Everything's okay for everyone else, which is not true. But that's, that's, the, that's the spell. Is this what Noam Chomsky was referring to when he talked about um, manufacturing consent? Is it the same thing? This is part of it. This is part of it. Chomsky has gone. Chomsky has, well, I mean, he's a linguist. He, he gets that kind of thing in some sense. Yeah, the manufacture of consent is an important part of it, but it's only part of it. The manufacture of consciousness, the manufacture of the world of ideas in which the current jerry-rigged mess that we call the, the, you know, the United States seems inevitable. That's the core of it. And the manufacture of consent is part of that. So, so why is magic so well suited to politics? Um, well, <clears throat> first of all, it's not suited to all kinds of politics. It's actually a very weak thing to use if we're talking politics by gunpoint. You know, once people start shooting, once we have, you know, state of civil war or things like that, magic is not as effective as more robust methods. It's a subtler approach. The thing that makes magic extremely powerful here and now is that it's something that individuals and small groups can do without a lot of funding. You don't need the huge um, media budgets. You don't need the huge technological structure. You can actually work by word of mouth, by building imagery, by letting it spread person to person through the grassroots, the crawl spaces. That makes magic ex exquisitely powerful. In a situation like this one where we have a status quo that's more or less frozen in place, but that very few people still find satisfactory. So uh, you write that, you know, studying the early stages of the 2016 presidential campaign, you uh, mm. witness Kulianos' style of magic in high relief. Explain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there were several. There were several aspects of it. I got to. I got to witness one of the more inept performances in that direction in the presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton. Um, I, I hope that people are taking her advertising, her slogans, her speeches, and like packaging it up as this is how to lose a presidential election. She had everything on her side. She had the whole political establishment lined up um, with her. She should have been a shoe in, but. She ran really the least competent president, presidential campaign in my lifetime. 
Um, what made it worse is that it was a rehash of her attempt at the nomination of 2008. So you have there inept magic, and there's a reason for that, which we can get to in a bit. But what we also had going on there, on the one hand, we had Trump's campaign, which was very clever, which was very nimble, which focused on doing an end run around the whole advertising routine, the, around the media, around the conventional wisdom, by going directly to people, all those mass rallies that he held. There were the symbols, the red hat. Um, I mean, the, the baseball cap is your basic proletarian headgear in America. It's things that it's what working class people wear. You, you, I mean, the thought of Hillary Clinton putting on one, a hat like that is just, you know, it, 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 it makes one do laugh. <clears throat> but Trump doing that, he's, you know, umpty millionaire, there he is with his, with his um, red baseball cap, with all of these various tricks and symbols and words and phrases that he was using to communicate to ordinary Americans, I'm just one of you. It was brilliantly done. And it did a very effective. It helped him in his end run around the political establishment. Right. You say even but his choice. Was, sorry, I was just going to say even his choice of haircut. You say was very oh important God, yes. and deliberate. Explain. Exactly. It. I mean, he he could have afforded a fashionable haircut. The guy had enough money, right? He wore a deliberately doofy looking haircut because one of the things he he figured out, or one of it, one of his. Um, Somebody in his campaign figured out that the best way for him to attract attention and to get the support of ordinary Americans was to get himself attacked constantly by the sneering defenders of privilege. All of this stuff about the orange man, the, the, you know, the insane Cheeto, the, the, you, you heard all this stuff. Every time somebody with a seven-figure salary and ample benefits spouted that, a hundred more working class voters said, I'm voting for him. And he knew that, and they didn't. Uh-huh. And so he proceeded to use his hairstyle and, you know, the, the I don't know what, what there was, spray tan he was using or what, but the whole nine yards to project this image of, of déclassé um, status, of I'm not one of the privileged classes, I'm not one of the pretty people. And it worked. Right, even his his as you say flouting of the rules of acceptable political discourse. Oh, exactly, exactly. I mean, you go into a bar in a working class neighborhood, and people are not going to be are not going to be politically correct. They're going to be talking, and they're going to be saying some things that many people in the sort of um, in in the comfortable classes, shall we say, um, would find just unspeakably rude. But he was doing it deliberately to communicate to voters, "I'm one of you guys." I'm not one of the suits. And of course, that also worked extremely well. It also helped that he was able to get, well, I mean, the, the, the joke during his, during his presidency was that um, the, the, his political opponents were cats, and the Twitter was his laser beam, and he would twitch it here, and they'd go running off that way. He'd twitch it there, and they'd be running off that way. He'd type covfefe into a tweet. And for, what was it, three days, everybody was babbling about Kofefe. Hmm. Um, it was hilarious to watch. It was very deliberate on his part, you know. And, and the fact that they never caught on, that they, they remained fixated on this idea that they were the only ones who could come up with something like that, that, you know, what could it mean? <laughs> well, what, why do you say that Donald Trump is like Julius Caesar? Okay, at this point, we're getting, we're getting into complicated territory. 
one of the one of the sources that I use for trying to make sense of today's America um, is a book, or actually a pair of books that used to be extremely popular and have now been basically erased from public memory: um, "The Decline of the West" by Oswald Spengler. Spengler was the beat poet's favorite uh, historian, by the way. They used to sit around the the table and, and read sections of his books um, to each other. But his basic point is that civilizations follow a rhythm. They have they have a life cycle. And if you know where you are in the cycle, you can figure out more or less what's going to happen next. One of the very common patterns he traced was what happens when you have a, a democratic society that gets rich. And what happens, of course, is that the rich people learn how to buy votes. And it quickly becomes not a democracy, but a plutocracy, a society where the interests of the wealthy take precedence over everything else. Um, Rome was a great example. The Roman Republic, when Rome was small and poor and threatened, it had plenty of problems, but it wasn't simply a, a wholly owned subsidiary of the rich. Once it became a, a big, thriving, successful nation, rather like the United States, um, it rotted straight out because it, the, the system of electoral, um, the, you know, electoral government of voting for consuls and voting for this had no defenses against corruption of the voters. And so what happens in that case, you end up with the mechanism of democracy used to defend the plutocrats and the interests of the rich. And then the people who are excluded start looking for charismatic demagogues who will take power and um, break the control of the rich over the, over the system. That's what Julius Caesar was. Caesar, Julius Caesar, he was from a really rich family. He had declared bankruptcy several times. He had immense debts. Um, he had he, he was well a very similar figure, and yet because he had, he spoke to the interests of the Roman working classes, they supported him loyally. They assisted him in taking power, um, and when he was overthrown and, and assassinated by a senatorial coup, um, they chased down and, and threw out of Rome the people who were involved in that. And, and of course, Augustus Caesar, Julius Caesar's nephew, ended up taking power as the first emperor. Um, so we, you know, one of the things that um, Spengler predicted was that we were right about to the point of starting to see figures of this type emerging in the Western world. That our democratic systems had reached a sufficient stage of corruption, of dependence on money, of, of um, deference to the interests of the rich as opposed to the interests of everyone else, that um, Caesars were, were, were the next agenda. He, he called it Caesarism. And so, yeah, um, Donald Trump is a great example of Caesar, Caesarism on the hoof, a rich guy who recognized that his political power, that he, or he could gain political power by basically reaching out to the working classes and building a following among them. And that's what he did. More of my conversation with John Michael Greer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. 
Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60 Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was good, good, a handsome man, Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. John Michael Greer is here, and we're discussing the magical and occult roots of political power. You take um, a fair bit of time sort of laying out the case, pointing out that the salary class has continued to prosper, even at the mm-hmm. expense of the wage class, even the investor yeah. class. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's start with the basic breakdown. One of the things I try, I try to point out here is that um, the divisions in American society that are, that are of the highest importance are usually the ones we don't talk about. And you can divide up our society very neatly based on how people earn most of their money. Do they get it from investments? Do they get it from a salary plus benefits? Do they get it from an hourly wage with no benefits? Do they get it from a government, um, a government welfare program? So we have a welfare class, we have a wage class, we have a salary class, we have an investment class. And those four broad groups of people very often act to further their, the interests of their class. It's quite reliable, you know, and for obvious reasons. You know, if, you, if you belong to um, the wage class, let's say, you're going to be very interested in supporting measures that will profit other people with wage, who, who earn a wage. If you involve the investment class, you really want to see investments, uh, your shelter of taxes and things like that. So the, the point that I wanted to make in my discussion is that of these four classes over the last 50 years, let's say, which of them have – what's happened to them? Um, the investment class has been up and down. Um, these days, as we all know, interest rates are in the toilet. And so anyone who is dependent on interest, on interest rate, you know, earning money, um, earning a, an income by way of interest or anything dependent on interest, they've been floundering a little bit. But they have enough money they generally can get by. Um, the salary class, by and large, has done extremely well. Um, the welfare class has done poorly, about as poorly as it's always doing. You know, it's down there with um, getting a tr- just enough money to get to keep body and soul together and dealing with this constant intrusive interference from the bureaucrats. Look at what's happened to the wage class, though. In 1966, let's pull a year out. 1966, if you had one American wage class income, and a family of four, you could afford a home, you could afford a car, you could afford three square meals a day, you could afford medical care. You basically all the necessities of life on the kind of income you were getting from a, a working class job. Now, a family of four on one wage class income is usually living on the street. Mm. The American wage class has been destroyed 
over a period of 50 years. It is the most dramatic political economic change of our lifetimes, and nobody's willing to talk about it. And if you look through who is benefiting from this, who has fostered this, who has benefited most from the specific steps that brought about the destruction of the wage class, it's the salary class, maybe. Right, because they're they're counting on uh, lower wages, uh, uh-huh. which which feed into inf- higher wages feed into inflation, so their dollar exactly. goes further. So they have, exactly. they have they have uh, they have prospered at the expense of the wage class. That's quite correct. Notice also how often the the specific things that are supposed to help the wage class actually help the salary class and hurt the wage class. The great example is um, this whole push, well, you know, if you don't have a job, you need to go to college and get a degree and then you'll be fine. Um, We saw how that worked out. Um, People went to college and they ran up immense student loan debts, um, $50,000, $100,000, and they ended up graduating and there were no jobs for them. But, oh my. God, was it a cash cow for the salary class? I mean, the banks, most people who work for banks are salary class. The universities, most people who work for universities are salary class. What a way of cashing in at the expense of other working class people who who were being told by all the acceptable authorities that what they were going to do was going to help them and their families. What about environmental causes? Oh, same thing. Um, have you ever noticed when environmentalists get hot under the collar about this or that or the other thing, it's always something that affects the working class lifestyle, nothing that affects them. We have to stop using coal. We have to stop the coal, shut down all the coal mines. But heaven help you if you suggest that they should stop flying to Puerto Vallarta for vacations, even though the global tourism industry produces more carbon than, than, than the burning of coal does. Um, you know, it's no matter what, it's always, we're going to, we're going to squeeze out, um, the, the wage class. We're going to sneer at the wage class. We're going to blame the wage class for everything that's wrong with the world while we continue to profit, to profit and take our salaries. Uh, so Trump obviously understood this and Mm -hmm. you, you, you spent a lot of time in the book laying out, you know, the issues that matter to not just the wage class, but to Americans in the run-up to 2016. You, you, you mm-hmm. uh, narrowed it down to four main issues, the risk of war, mm-hmm. the Obamacare disaster, mm-hmm. bringing back jobs, and, and punishing mm-hmm. the Democrats. These would be the disaffected Dems that were angered that their candidate, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, was bamboozled out of the nomination yeah. by, by Hillary. One could say, well, that, that requires maybe an understanding of, of uh, the human condition and a keen observer of politics. What do these things have to do with magic? <laughs> well, the, one, one of the things that I think gets in the way of understanding magic nowadays is precisely this tendency to think of magic as something divorced from everyday life. Um, as our example of advertising shows, we're surrounded by, by magic all the time. Um, you, can, you can learn quite a bit about the spells that hold our, our lives in place if you look at things like um, our street grids. Our styles of architecture. What are what our cars look like? Look at the front nose of cars and notice that they're all faces. Um, for a 
while they used to be smiley faces. Now they're all snarly faces. The eyes slant down. The, um, the mouth-like orifices are in snarls. What is that saying about us? We are surrounded by magic all the time. Magic is not something, if you will, magic is not a way of talking about a world, some other, other world full of strange, you know, creepy creatures or what have you. It's a way of understanding the world in which we live and of working with that world. Now, all of the, the place where magic really gets into this whole issue, um, you know, why the 2016 election came out as it did, it's less, I mean, the, the issues that concerned people in the 2016 election, the, the worry that Hillary Clinton was going to get us into a war with the Russians, the, the, the complete disaster of, the, the, of Obamacare, which basically demanded that people pay um, endlessly rising prices for insurance policies that weren't, weren't worth the toilet paper they were written on. Um, the, the need to bring back jobs and people's quite reasonable outrage for the way that Bernie Sanders was railroaded by the, by the Democratic machine. Um, you'd think that those would be the things that the media would talk about. You'd think those would be the things that pundits and analysts would say, well, you know, um, the Democrats really should consider um, a less <laughs> warmongering candidate next time. But they didn't. Instead, it was like the fizzy brown sugar water thing. We're going to talk about racism. We're not going to talk about these other issues. We're going to insist that the only reason anybody could have ever voted for Trump was because they were personally a bunch of evil racists. Now, does racism exist in America today? Of course it does. Is it the only thing that determines how people are going to vote? No, Socrates, it is not. And the use of racism and sexism and and all these other labels for things that actually exist, but stretching them far beyond the way you know, their actual role, so they could be used to silence dissent and to try to prevent people from talking about the problems with the status quo. That is magic. And and how is it that they they manage the Dems? That is, and and Hillary with his with her basket of deplorables um, <laughs> comment, you know fail to understand this, that, that they were making Trump, as you point out, more forbidden and therefore more desirable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there, there, there is another side to magic, and this is something that very often gets going in a society like ours, which is divided between a wealthy aristocracy and the rest of us. Very often the aristocracy the wealthy classes, the comfortable classes, end up practicing forms of magic themselves that are designed to convince them that everything is okay, that they're the good people, that what they're doing is the right thing. Human beings are, human beings are not always stupid. And if you are a member of the upper classes and you happen to have the brains the gods gave geese, you might just suddenly realize that the way you're living is actually harming people, like lots of people. And this, this plane that you're taking to Puerto Vallarta, this vacation you're going on, is actually like dumping lots of carbon. And you think, that, you think dumping carbon's a bad thing, but you want to go on your vacation. So we end up with this, this rise of a kind of um, spirituality of the comfortable that has as its focus convincing people that nothing is wrong, that everything is fine, and that... All you have to do is, you know, uh, trust the science, go with the system, believe what you're told, and, and, and you'll be one of the good people and everything's wonderful. And th- there's a lot of that in the upper classes today. We have people going to meditation retreats. We have people doing a kind of faux shamanism. We have all of these various things that people in the comfortable classes do to make themselves feel good, 
to blot out the awareness that um, we live in a crumbling society and that the policies they support are helping it crumble. And that's the problem that Clinton and the Democrats generally ran into face first in 2016, because they, you know, the, so many people in these classes are busy practicing. They're, they're doing the meditations that turn off the mind. They're doing all of these things to make themselves feel good. They're reciting affirmations that, to convince themselves that um, the world is a wonderful place and they're wonderful and everything's wonderful. And so they were unable to realize that they were losing. Watch, if, if, you, if you go back to um, go back online, see if you can find some of the old footage of Clinton and her flax during the twenty during the twenty sixteen election. They're talking, you know, every time that it tur- another poll came out saying that um, most Americans disliked and distrusted Hillary Clinton, they get this blank look, and they say, "Oh, we just have to re- reintroduce her to the American people," or something like that. The American people knew her perfectly well by then. She'd been a public figure for how long? They knew what they were getting and they didn't want it. And it never sunk in that that could be a problem. It never sunk in that the American people might vote for their own interests instead of Hillary Clinton's. And so the shock that must have gone through her, you know, her circle um, when it turned out that all those, you know, however many tons of, of glass um, ceiling-shaped confetti that was supposed to fall when she announced her victory, they'd ordered in advance, you know. <laughs> and I, I wonder to this day what happened to that, what they did with all those boxes of confetti. Mm, interesting. It's, just one, one, yeah, I guess one it's, of those, it's but, in the same yeah, warehouse but, with the cover of Time magazine with her picture on it, Madam <laughs> President. <laughs> Madam President, that's right. So, but that's, there's, there's so much of that these days. As a writer, if I may interject something, I get to see this all the time. The big publishing firms decide, decide in advance what the bestsellers are going to be, and they run these huge print runs of bestsellers. And then as often as not, nobody wants to read them because they're very often pretty lousy books. And so there are sections of northern New Jersey that are just warehouse after warehouse after warehouse full of books that were printed up to be bestsellers and nobody wanted to read. And they can't just get themselves to pulp them because, well, they're good books. They're supposed to be a bestseller. It's hilarious. But they're stuck in that same mindset that guided the, the, you know, the Clintonistas in their time, that, that the, people, the people can't possibly make up their own minds, that um, you know, we'll tell them what to do. Madeleine Albright saying there's a special place in hell for women who won't help other women. Um, and, you know, without noticing that maybe she and Hillary Clinton might help any of these women who were in poverty, any of these women in the working classes who had suffered miserably under decades of the same policies Hillary Clinton was going to push, push forward. Right, right. People f- finally woke up, and, and as you point out in the book, they finally decided why settle for the lesser evil. Why settle for the lesser evil? I, one of the things I talk about in the book is the, the perennial presidential campaigns of Cthulhu, um, H.P. Lovecraft's tentacle demon god. And Cthulhu's great campaign slogan has always been, why settle for the lesser evil? And everyone laughs because every single campaign we've had from um, until 2016 for decades was basically a matter of which candidate is worst. You know, your candidate's worse than ours. Our candidate's worse than, you know, everyone just throwing it back and forth. There was never any suggestion that things could get better. 
it was always the Republicans are going to do this horrible thing. The Democrats are going to do this horrible thing. Back and forth, to insisting that all people could hope for was the lesser evil. And I think one of the major things that has happened is that people are finally sick of it because the lesser evil is more than they're willing to tolerate. So tell me about the American offshoots of the uh, the occultist theosophical society. What 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 oh. do they have to do with Trump? Okay, that's that's a, it's a little more complex than that um, because the the theosophical society that people get really confused about the politics of magic. A lot of magic in the Western world is actually well over on the left. The Theosophical Society, um, which was a big thing in the late 19th and early 20th century, it's pretty small now, but it was a, it was a major path-breaking organization, and it was politically way over to the left. Um, many other thing, occult organizations have been. Wicca, of course, is is very much um, sort of, you know toward the toward the left-wing feminist sort of agenda. Um, there were, however, various groups of people, um, and that. Did not like that. Did not support this. That were interested in conservative politics instead, and they actually didn't have much to do with the Trump phenomenon. But one of them has been blamed for it constantly. That's the traditionalists. Um, traditionalism started in France. Uh, René Guénon was the major figure who founded it. Um, there was there. There are several others. He's not the one most people like talking about. There was a guy named Julius Evola who was Italian, who was. Um, I mean, this he he makes a really good punching bag for the for, you know for the left wing left wing these days because uh, Evola was the guy who criticized Benito Mussolini for not being fascist enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, seriously, um, Evola ended World War, but he, the, he spent the latter part of World War II as a, as a colonel in the SS, so he was he was way over into the fascist realm of things. Um, he was out on the fringes of the traditionalist movement. And while there have been several very heavily marketed attempts to blame traditionalism on Trump or Trump on traditionalism or some, some such combination, um, it's all just hand-waving. The actual occult movement that, that played a role in getting Trump in, into office actually emerged on the Internet. It didn't have any particular deep connections with traditionalism or theosophy or, or m much less fascism. Um, it emerged from the chans, which are a set of, of anonymous message boards, originally started by fans of video games. Um, they have the, all of the various chans have very, boards for various subjects. Several of them have boards that talk about politically incorrect topics. You know, this is the internet. People like talking about the forbidden. And so it was there that people started getting into the Trump campaign very early. I mean, for the sheer absurdist value of it, here we have a reality TV show. Um, star who's running for president. Here we have a, wor a World Wrestling Federation promoter. You know, he's he, <laughs> he running for president. They loved it. Um, they also liked his platform. And the further things gone, they, they started getting into it. And they're the ones who started getting into a tradition called chaos magic. Um, long story, it's, but, but the, the very short form is that chaos magic is a variety of magical practice that's relatively easy to learn. They it up. They ran with it. They got deep into it. And some very odd things happened, which I talk about in my book. Some, some really unusual, what, what Carl Jung, the psychologist, called synchronicities, cascades of coincidence, piled up around them. Um, were they involved in putting Trump in the White House? Quite possibly. But since they don't connect to the fascists, they don't have the connect to the traditionalists, you can't really blame Putin for the existence of the chans or what have you. 
a lot of people on the left have been very uncomfortable talking about them because it's this kind of grassroots internet self-perpetuating party that that ended up taking a role in things and that's not part of the narrative why didn't the magic work in 2020 john that's where we get into some very deep issues because magic is not your servant magic is when you, you can it's do you remember that there's that there's a great scene in the first star wars movie um does it control your actions yes but it also obeys your commands um magic is an interchange you're you're working with existing energies. And you can take this in a psychological sense. You can take it in a rather more than psychological sense. But sometimes the currents flow with you and sometimes they don't. And it's very clear that something was moving in 2016 that didn't happen in 2020. And there are complicated reasons. It's, it, it, would take, it would take a good half hour for us to discuss the background for what actually happened. But the major thing I would point to is that whatever did or didn't happen in 2020, the, thing, the whole business is not over yet, not by a long shot. Donald Trump is no longer in the White House, but many of the issues that helped put him there are still alive issues, and they're increasingly being discussed in public. The, the sort of wall of silence, the we're not going to talk about what happened to the wage class, that's cracking. And a lot of other factors are coming, are coming, broadly speaking, the movement that he set in motion is most of the way through the process of taking over the Republican Party. The Democrats are, well, crapping themselves over this, but um, so were a lot of the old-fashioned Republicans. The, the you know, business-as-usual brigade of both parties is not too happy. But we're in the middle of a process, and... To some extent, I, I, putting this book out, um, at my book, the, the King in Orange, it's a preliminary report on something that is still very much happening. And I expect in another five or ten years to be writing another book on, well, what happened next. The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. John, how do we get a copy? Um, it will be out shortly from, um, it's being distributed by Simon & Schuster. Um, it should be available on all the usual um, online bookstores. And of course, your favorite, um, your favorite full-service bookstore will happily get, order your copy unless they decide they don't like its politics. <laughs> John, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we can uh, do it again sometime. Thank you so I much. I look forward to it. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to share a few details about an upcoming episode. You can become an official Patreon supporter of my work here at Strange Planet Productions by donating a monthly amount through patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several tiers to choose from. Pick which one is right for you, but any monthly amount is greatly appreciated. As a sign of my appreciation, you can have your name mentioned on air during my weekly radio show, or you could have your name included in a crawl on my YouTube channel live stream. You could also receive episodes of my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. This critically acclaimed podcast, produced in partnership with Chris Jericho, is not currently available anywhere else. 
If you enjoy this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you can really get behind me and my work by donating once a month at patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next time, I'll speak with a lifelong experiencer of alien contact and a clinical hypnotherapist who specializes in working with individuals who feel they've had experiences with extraterrestrial and ultra-terrestrial beings. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.